You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, colleagues, you're all very, very welcome. Good evening. It's lovely to have such a packed house, but there are one or two seats left here at the front. If anybody is standing at the back, please come down to the front. You all right there? All right. But please, you're welcome. Is it Elizabeth? Yeah. Come on down. Um, So... Colleagues, friends, you're all very, very welcome. Those of you who are joining us online, it's great to have so many people here uh, this evening. Uh, We really are delighted to be hosting what we think will be an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion, which is our last behind the headlines discussion of this academic year on what it means to be human in the 21st century. Of course, tonight's discussion forms part of the Trinity Longroom Hub's uh, Behind the Headline. Uh, uh, and uh, this is a format that I recognise many faces in the audience, so you're familiar with it. But for those of you who aren't, what we want to do in these discussions is to apply the long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities, uh, but also to work across uh, uh, science Uh, 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 both the physical sciences, the biological sciences and the social uh, sciences. And particularly with this series, we're absolutely delighted to be working with Enterprise uh, and particularly the Human Insights Lab at the Dock in Accenture. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jane Olmeyer and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Now... Oh, our banner has fallen down. Usually there's a lovely banner of the hub behind me and I can point to the gorgeous building. But it is that lovely building uh, just opposite um, uh, or down the ramp on the left. You all know it, I hope. Uh, And in the hub, we do three things. We uh, uh, celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. We build collaborations across and within disciplines uh, because we really do believe that the magic happens when the disciplines collide. And I think we're going to get a really really wonderful example of that this evening. Uh, The third thing we do is engage with public humanities and I'm particularly delighted that Terry Neal is with us this evening as well because without Terry Neal we wouldn't be having all of these public humanities events. And the other person I'm particularly delighted uh, uh, to welcome is Stephen Vernon because the John Pollard Foundation actually has endowed this behind uh, the headlines uh, uh, series and again without their support we all wouldn't be here uh, uh, this evening. I want to say a word or two about the relationship with Accenture because actually that has been an incredibly exciting one and our first uh, speaker this evening will actually be Lorna Ross from uh, the DOC uh, which is Accenture's global research and uh, incubation hub here in Dublin. And it was really in partnership with Lorna that we came up with this idea of having a lecture series on what it means to be human in the 21st century It's a cross-disciplinary lecture series which will bring some very prominent uh, international academics and industry figures to Trinity in 2019 to discuss the human experience of today. Uh, We'll look at human progress um, and its future in the face of the accelerated change brought about by artificial intelligence and uh, technology. Uh, With humanity At its critical uh, juncture in our development, this series aims to ask some of the disruptive questions that can only be addressed 
when academia meets with industry uh, and the sciences uh, join uh, with the humanities. So we're hugely excited about that series. I'll say a few words about it at the end. There should even be flyers. I see one. There's a, the Accenture team is, is, is here. So those white flyers are what you're looking for. Hopefully they're on your seat so you can pick one up as you go out. They'll give you a little bit more information about the lecture series. So back to this evening. So tonight's panel discussion really is a taster um, uh, for the series. And I'm so delighted to welcome four hugely distinguished speakers. Um, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, and then the drill is as usual. Each speaker has nine minutes, and we're really strict about the time in here. So they speak for nine minutes, and then it'll be over to you for questions uh, uh, and answers, uh, and then back to our speakers to wrap things uh, up. But our first speaker tonight is uh, Lorna Ross. And Lorna Ross is an amazing woman. I, as I say, I've had the absolute privilege of working with her uh, since August. Um, she's got a career in design, um, uh, and I guess it spans more than 25 years. But Lorna, to look at you, you wouldn't think so. It's like you just, uh, I was going to say, it seems like, you, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not, I better not say anything. Um, but, but, but her career began in the world of fashion. Uh, wearable technology and most recently healthcare. Um, she's a futurist at heart and she uh, really is recognised for her ability to anticipate shifts in the social, cultural and economic context for design. And she has brought this wealth of expertise uh, here uh, to uh, the dock and, and to Accenture. And as I say, she's played this extraordinary inspiring role working with us in the Trinity Long Room Hub and she'll say a few words about the work that we are doing together but it's really lovely to welcome others from Accenture. Anyone else from Accenture here tonight? There's a couple of you. Well you're extremely, yeah that's great, no pressure uh, Lorna um, but it's been a joy to work with you all and uh, uh, we're developing this sub lab that Fiona is leading. So, so Lorna is our first speaker tonight. Our second speaker tonight is also a very very special uh, person and somebody who uh, knows the Trinity Long Room Hub well, he's Mark O'Connell. He's a non-fiction writer from Dublin. But you might know Mark because of his amazing book, To Be a Machine, Adventures Amongst Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers, and the Future is Solving the, prob the Modest Problem of Death. Um, what a title. Um, uh, but, but Mark's book uh, won an extraordinarily pre prestigious uh, award from the uh, Wellcome Foundation in 2018, and it's been shortlisted uh, for other extremely distinguished uh, uh, book prizes, including that of the Royal uh, uh, Society at Science Book Prize. He writes for uh, uh, some very interesting uh, uh, papers and uh, the including the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, The New Yorker. Uh, but I'm really proud to say he's got a PhD in English uh, from Trinity, and uh, he was an early career researcher in the Trinity at Long Room Hub in 2013-14. Uh, so, Mark, you're extremely welcome. Or oh, welcome back. You're never going to escape now. I should also ha have said that Mark's work was all funded by the Irish Research Council. I, I have to get that. I chair the Irish Research Councils. So when you, there's an opportunity to give it a plug, it's always very important. Our third speaker this evening is um, uh, Kevin Mitchell. Now, Kevin Mitchell is currently the senior lecturer uh, in Trinity, so he has a, a major leadership role in the university, but he's found time uh, to publish, uh, again, a remarkable book, but he's an associate professor in the Smurfett Institute of Genetics 
uh, and a member of the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience, TCIN. And we in the Hub have been working very closely with TCIN to do some fabulous work in, in the whole space of neurohumanities. Uh, so Kevin's interests are about understanding the genetic uh, program specifying the wiring of the brain and its uh, relevance to variation in human uh, faculties. Um, and as I say, he's just published a, a fantastic book uh, called Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains uh, Shapes Who We Are. And he's just back from a big lecture tour in the US. So uh, we're, again, Kevin, absolutely delighted you're here. And then last but not least uh, is uh, Genevieve Bell. And Genevieve Bell is probably somebody who doesn't need a huge introduction uh, uh, because she is extremely well known. She's the distinguished professor um, uh, at the Australian National uh, University and senior fellow at Intel. Um, she's a cultural anthropologist uh, and is best known for her work at the intersection of cultural practice and technology uh, development. She currently heads up the 3A Institute um, and, and hopefully she might say a word or two about that tonight, but what she's tasked herself with doing is building a new applied science around the management of artificial intelligence, data, technology and their impact on humanity. And both um, Lorna and Genevieve have been involved in discussions we've been having all afternoon, uh, a fascinating set of discussions uh, with enterprise uh, in this whole area of how the arts and humanities can work more closely uh, with companies like Intel, uh, Xilinx uh, and um, uh, Accenture. So I'm really delighted that they still have the energy to come and, and speak this evening. Uh, and obviously, Genevieve has come a long way. She was performing in Dingle at, uh, uh, at the weekend to at what was a fantastic event. So without further ado, uh, uh, we're going to welcome uh, Lorna Ross to the stage. However, I'm, uh, please switch your mobile phones to silent. However, feel free to tweet. Uh, and we'd love you to use the hashtag uh, HubMatters. So, Lorna, over to you. Thank you, Jane. Okay, nine minutes. Okay, <laughs> everyone who knows me knows. So I, I'd like to um, apologize. I'm going to read my notes. Oh, I keep seeing people I know. This is horrible. Um, I'll keep. I'll look at my. So I, I was. Jane mentioned that the just really quickly the the Human Insights Lab is a very new initiative at the Doc um, Accenture's Innovation Center that's just down in Rogerson's Key, and I wanted to you know I, to share how novice we feel in this topic. And you know, as a kind of characteristic of being novice, I have notes, and I'm not as fluent in this conversation as I'd like to be. But I'm going to just tee up, hopefully, what is going to be maybe a more, you know, kind of more conversation later on about why we're here, why we're partnering with Trinity, why Accenture is funding a new lab around human insights. And so I'm going to have to kind of give you the backstory a little bit. So forgive me, but I'm going to read this so it's easier for me to not get lost. So, if we are to believe the persistent voices right now humans both at an individual level and humankind as a whole will increasingly have to deal with things we've never encountered before. I'm not sure how significant that is given that most historians, such as Jane, would argue that this kind of anxiety is common to every generation. However, at a time what feels like unprecedented change, there's certainly a narrative around that we are at some inflection point you know, in terms of our human civilization and evolution, um, many of us have experienced that niggling doubt when we think the things that we believed as timeless wisdoms 
have in fact become outdated, outdated biases. So I don't know about you, but sometimes confronted with some of the things that we're considering right now, I don't know what kind of frame of reference to use anymore. And I wonder about the kind of our ability to look back and to learn enough about the you know about what you know what we're facing, thinking about the history and the patterns that we've we've experienced. So science for generations, you know, for three centuries in fact, has shaped how we see the world, how we understand it. It's given us names for things and ways to quantify and measure everything around us. And it's determined what we believe to be true and what we all agree is real. Now, more recently, technology, which we consider science's little sister, has assumed a really similar role culturally. Um, and more recently is shaping what we believe also and what we think is true. So there's this kind of parallel, the kind of migration of a lot of the language coming out of science moving into tech. Um, so clearly technology is not bad. If you know what you want in life, technology can help you get it. But if you don't know what you want, it will all too easily shape your aims for you. So as we sink deeper into a culture of distraction, we need to consider not only why we are so easily distracted, but what we seek distraction from. We need to view with some skepticism the narrative dominating currently, propagated from a utopian tech-centric view of the world. So many of our economies are increasingly aligned to the tech industry, and such a powerful influence and reach into our lives is shaping how we think and how we feel about the world around us, and indeed how we feel about ourselves and each other. So our fear is not that the machines themselves, the technology themselves, it's more our eroding confidence in our ability to agree how much we want our world to be shaped by them. Degrading trust in, in government amplifies our feelings of hopelessness and inevitability as we struggle to align on what is true and what we should believe. The sense of tech fatalism seems to be, have established itself deeply in both public and corporate narratives. And those who would question, the, they run the risk of being viewed as Luddite. It's not hard to be consumed with this anxiety, this tech anxiety. And yet it's, de it's deceptively distracting from a much bigger issue. Perhaps we should be more consumed with philosophical questions about humanity, given the perceived uncertainty of our future. For example, do we, do we have the right definition of intelligence? AI systems are, in truth, not all that terribly smart yet. But if we keep talking about them as if they are, we run the risk of biasing our measure of human intelligence <laughs> towards the synthetic. I would argue that education should not be about keeping pace with technology. That's a race we won't win, nor should we want to. Offering our children skills with diminished economic and social value is deeply irresponsible. We need more accountability in education, but even more important, we need a vision that leads with human optimism. As the Human Insights Labs embarks on its work, its single focus will be to understand what the most important questions of our time are. These are not questions about technology, but questions about ourselves and our relationship with the tools that we build. In collaboration with Trinity Longroom Hub, we look forward to hosting a series of interdisciplinary conversations, similar to the one tonight, kicking off tonight, where hopefully these questions will be shaped. That's it. Did I finish? <laughs>
stick pretty closely to the script here. Um, should be able to get it done within nine minutes without <laughs> rushing. But um, I might talk for a little bit longer. Um, just last week, Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of Tesla and SpaceX and co-founder of PayPal, gave an interview aired on the American network HBO in which he talked about his newest business called Neuralink. Neuralink is a so-called neurotechnology company aimed at developing methods by which human brains might eventually be connected at the neuron level to artificial intelligence. This, Musk suggested, could probably be done within a decade and would affect what he called a kind of democratization of intelligence. If we have billions of people, he said, with the high bandwidth link to the AI extension of themselves, it would actually make everyone hyper smart. The alternative to merging our brains with AI, he claimed, was that our own technological creation would inevitably make us obsolete as a species. Just as the so-called lower primates have fared pretty badly under the reign of uh, we humans, their habitats destroyed, forced into zoos for our entertainment and so forth, the growing power of AI, Musk warned, could lead to humanity being hoarded into zoo-like portions of the planet, or indeed being wiped out entirely by this superior form of intelligence. And so the merger of humans and machine intelligence becomes, in this view, a matter of existential urgency. Musk is certainly the most prominent advocate for the merger of machine and human intelligence, but he's by no means alone in advancing this dichotomy of human obsolescence versus a kind of technological transcendence. It's a vision I myself am pretty familiar with, having written a book for which I spent about two years on and off immersed in the world of what's called transhumanism a social movement largely focused on, but by no means uh, limited to Silicon Valley, um, and predicated on the idea that we can and should use technology as a means of transcending our animal-human condition to augment our cognitive powers and uh, radically extend our lifespans and so forth. Another highly prominent advocate of transhumanist ideas is a person named Ray Kurzweil. Kurzweil is the inventor of many ingenious uh, devices, including the flatbed scanner, and is these days a director of engineering at Google. In 2005, he published a book called The Singularity is Near, in which he outlines how, in the pretty near future, he says by 2045, although the date kind of moves back a little bit um, as the technology fails to get sophisticated enough, um, but he says that artificial intelligence is going to become so sophisticated and so powerful that we'll be able to upload our minds to AI supercomputers and merge with this technology in a final liberation from biology itself. Uh, so this basically is the notion of the singularity, which is often referred to more or less dismissively, but not, I think, entirely unfairly as the rapture of the nerds. Um, uh, so this picture that Kurzweil paints of the future is one in which technology continues to get smaller and more powerful until such time as its accelerating evolution becomes the primary agent of our own future evolution as a species. So we'll no longer carry computers around with us, he says, but rather take them into our bodies, into our brains and our bloodstreams, thereby changing the entire nature of the human experience. The vision of the future advanced by people like Musk and like Kurzweil 
is, I think, primarily attractive to people who already think of themselves as machines, people who agree with the artificial intelligence pioneer Marvin Minsky that, and I apologize for this quote, the human brain happens to be a meat machine. <clears throat> Why would we, machines that we ultimately are, not choose to upgrade ourselves to a higher degree of functionality to attain what must cause superhuman cognition? If we understand a machine to be an apparatus constructed for the performance of a particular task, then our task, as machines, is surely to think, to compute at the highest level possible. In this deeply instrumentalist view of human life, it's more or less our duty, um, and pretty much the whole point of our existing in the first place, to increase our computational firepower, and to ensure that, as machines, we run as efficiently as possible for as long as possible. This is Kurzweil in The Singularity is Near. He says, our version 1.0 biological bodies are frail and subject to a myriad of failure modes, not to mention the cumbersome maintenance rituals they require. While human intelligence is sometimes capable of soaring in its creativity and expressiveness, much human thought is derivative, petty, and circumscribed. The singularity will allow us to transcend these limitations of our biological bodies and brains. We will gain power over our fates. Our mortality will be in our own hands. What Kurzweil is saying here is, I think, a vision of what millenarian prophets have been saying for centuries, that we will finally escape the fallen condition of our humanity, finally become unfleshed. We'll be restored to a kind of prelapsarian state of wholeness, a final union in which technology will take the place of God. One of the key ideas in any consideration of these proposed future technologies is the notion of obsolescence. Transhumanists, when they speak about the human body, the fleshy hardware on which we run the software of our minds, tend to speak of it as an outmoded technology. We are already machines in this view. It's just that we happen to be hopelessly antiquated machines, machines that were designed for use on the African savanna hundreds of thousands of years ago and which are just not sufficiently up-to-date for the requirements of contemporary life. Flesh, in other words, is a dead format. This notion of the human body as an obsolete technology seems uh, at first very strange, almost alien. Um, it's a disturbing way of thinking about human life. Um, and it, it was for me, certainly, when I began to encounter it, and in many ways still is. But if you think about it in terms of certain anxieties that underlie the relationship between human beings and technology in the capitalist system in which we all find ourselves, then it comes to make an odd kind of sense. One of the great shadows of fear and uncertainty that falls over our time is caused by the looming tide of automation that's rushing towards us. It's difficult to overstate the scale uh, of the social and economic upheavals that artificial intelligence is likely to bring. A great many jobs, whole sectors of the employment economy, may well become obsolete as more and more areas of human skill and expertise become synthesized by machines. Increasingly, we live in a world governed by systems we struggle to understand. Stock markets rise and fall in response to the fluctuations of incomprehensible AI systems. Systems of human relation, from who we date to how we vote, are increasingly influenced by the whims of unseen algorithms. So it's against this background uh, that the anxiety of human obsolescence takes hold. With regard to the increasing power and sophistication of technology, Transhumanism could be seen as taking a kind of, if you can't beat them, join them position. Joining, in this case, being the startlingly literal business of merging our minds with technology. So how likely is it to come to pass? 
this proposed merger? How likely are we to wind up living in a world where Elon Musk is providing us, or more likely our social and economic betters, with the means towards what he calls superhuman cognition? For what it's worth, I find it hard to imagine that the singularity is actually near. But in any case, I never really conceived of my book as being about the capital F future. What's always interested me about the future, as an idea, as a fantasy, as a nightmare, is what it can tell us about the present. Transhumanism prevents, presents a vision of imminent and radical change in the human condition. In the case of the singularity, the vision is almost explicitly apocalyptic. And apocalyptic visions always tell us a lot more about the time in which they were written than they do about the future. The singularity, the idea of a merger of human and machine intelligence, tells us at least as much about the world we currently inhabit as it does about any possible future. One of the transhumanists I met um, while doing the reporting for my book, a self-proclaimed cyborg who designed and built um, technologies for implanting in his own body, asked me a question that stuck with me. It was late one night and we were sitting around uh, drinking beers in his basement and talking about the future. And he had his iPhone in his hand and he lifted it up towards me and he said, what if we're already living in the singularity? It's a question I think about a lot because maybe the singularity is nothing more and nothing less than a myth about contemporary techno-capitalism, an elaborate story that illuminates how things already are and how, they're in some how they have in some sense always been. Because to talk about a merger of humans with technology is simply to talk about being human. Because, of course, you can't even begin to try to define what a human being is without talking about technology. We became human when we started using tools. So maybe the singularity began when the first Neolithic human picked up a rock and bashed it against another rock to make fire. Maybe your existence as a cyborg is affirmed every time your phone buzzes in your pocket with a notification every time you navigate your way through the city by means of a GPS system in your hand, signaling your position to a satellite orbiting the Earth. Maybe the singularity, in other words, is already here. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great um, that's a great setup, actually, for what I'm going to talk about. Um, thanks to Jane very much and, and all the organisers for the invitation. This has already been really fun. Um, I'm going to give you a different view, and I want to start with um, what I think is our, our best understanding of where our individual natures come from. So we're not born as blank slates. We all do have innate predispositions, and they come partly from our genetics and influences on the way our brains are wired. So in, in all of you, we all have a human genome. That human genome encodes the instructions for making a human being with a human brain that has human nature, generally speaking. So differences between our DNA and other species explain the differences between our respective natures, so between humans and chimps, for example. And the same thing applies to individual humans. Differences in our genomes that encode that program of brain development give rise to differences in the way our brains are structured, literally the way that they're wired, the way that they function, and thereby influence our psychological traits. So we do have innate predispositions, bless you, that uh, affect many aspects of our psychology, our personality, intelligence, sexuality, even perception, the way we perceive the world, 
Um, all of those things have some innate biological differences between us, partly from the way our, our uh, genes are, but also partly just from the way the program of development plays out in each of us to give a unique, uh, a unique outcome. And those, um, those predispositions play uh, an increasing, a cascading, continuing role across the trajectories of our lives. So they don't determine our behavior on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, but they influence the way that we develop, they influence the way our characters emerge, they influence the way our habits emerge over time. And we are learning not just that, that general point, that that's the case, but we're learning a lot more about the specific details. We're finding specific genetic variations that affect intelligence or personality. We're finding specific neural markers or aspects of brain circuitry that affect personality traits and so on. And with that knowledge comes, I think, two important implications for what it means to be human. And the first of those is really conceptual. What do we feel like it means to be human? And we heard partly, I think, from, from Mark's talk, this idea that we're, that we're just meat machines, that there's a very mechanistic view of how our brains work and, and it, this feeling that if we can describe it and reduce it down to that level of molecules and neural circuits, that that means we're just automata, actually. We're just reacting to things. We're not really in control. We don't really have free will. We didn't choose our traits. We didn't choose our predispositions. Uh, we can't necessarily override them. And in some way, they influence our behavior uh, throughout our whole lives. So there's a, there's a danger, I think, in presenting that kind of picture in an overly deterministic way, because I don't think it is deterministic. That influence uh, of genes and, and the way our brain are, is wired is important, but it's only part of it. It's only the baseline. It's where we start, uh, but actually our, our characters emerge through our experiences. Of course, our traits influence our experiences. They influence the way we react to those experiences, but we still have lived experiences as human beings. Our narrative is still the most important thing on a daily basis that makes our, our, our behavior, determines our behavior in any given situation. Because, in fact, we're never in any given situation. We're always in some particular situation. And that's what life is, just one damn thing after another. So that's uh, the, the idea that we don't have free will or, or agency, the idea that neuroscience in some way uh, rejects that uh, is, is nonsense. It doesn't at all. It just means we have to think a little bit more clearly about uh, how that agency can emerge in the physical structure of a brain. And if we get too reductionist about it, then we miss the big picture, because it's the big patterns that matter, um, not, not the low-level details. So, so there is a conceptual uh, effect, I think, of increasing knowledge of genetics and neuroscience on the way we think of ourselves. There's also some very practical effects in terms of that technology. So one of them is that we can predict. We can look at people's genes now. We can predict things like intelligence. We can predict things like personality traits to a certain extent. Not, not very well at all, actually. But in an actuarial sense, in a statistical sense, we can explain some of the differences in, in the population. And if I genotyped everyone in this room here, I could put you somewhere on a normal curve of, say, intelligence, with a pretty wide margin of error for every individual person. <laughs> Um, so, there is an ability to predict however poor it is at the moment, and it's getting better all the time. What are, what are people going to use that for? Well, people are already proposing it as a kind of a genetic aptitude test. So, the idea that we can, rather than doing IQ tests in children, we can just 
look at their genotypes and stream them into particular classes and schools, or for example, use that for employers, or for insurance companies, or for recruitment. So all kinds of possible things that genetic information could be used for, even if it's a crappy predictor, it may still be statistically a useful predictor for some things. The other thing is that we can select, we can select embryos. So we can predict traits prior to a human being ever existing, that there is an embryo, and people are already doing this, of course, in in vitro fertilization. They screen versus various diseases. Uh, they may select for sex in some, in some jurisdictions, for example. And with this sort of technology, if you're able to get a predicted IQ score, genetically speaking, then people may be able to choose between one embryo or another that has a higher score for that or for any other trait that you want. And there's a company recently in the States called Genomic Prediction that has proposed to do exactly this. So this isn't science fiction. This is happening uh, already right now. And we haven't really had an ethical discussion about what that means or what the effects might be. Now, the third aspect is, is a little even starker, I think. It's the ability to manipulate, not just predict or select, but actually go into an embryo and use genome editing techniques like CRISPR that you might have heard of uh, to actually change the genes in an embryo and thereby influence its psychological traits. Now, this has apparently already been done last week. In, in China, there was an, an announcement that uh, several embryos were edited. Uh, it was for a, a, a gene that supposedly gives um, immunity to HIV infection. Uh, it was a horrendously unethical thing to do and completely unregulated, uh, but the genie is out of the bottle. This can happen. If we can predict these psychological traits, you can bet that someone's going to try to do this. So there are some, some interesting um, implications of that. I think some of them are just social, again, coming back to the conception of what it means to be human. I think in some sense that idea, there's a potential commodification of, of children there. There's an idea that if you're going to choose between them on the basis of, of some of these psycho psychological traits, you're making a judgment. You're making a value judgment that some of them are better than others. It's better to be more intelligent than less. So you'd rather have the child that will be more intelligent than the one that will be less or predicted to be. So that, to me, potentially changes the relationship between parents and children in ways that we probably can't fully anticipate what all the consequences of that, um, of that would be. In an interesting way, I think it, it also, you can ask the question, I mean, right now, we all just sort of turn out a certain way. No one has made us that, cer that certain way. But if somebody has made a choice for you to be a certain way, then are you re responsible for it? Are they responsible for it? You know, what happens if you go off to be a criminal and they, they did something that influences that? Where does the responsibility lie if you're actually tinkering with, uh, with those traits before they're, uh, before they're manifested in an individual? Okay, so that's the scary prospect. Now, I want to row back on that a little bit because there's one really important point about this. So currently, our genetic predictions of psychological traits are really poor. There's a, definitely, they're going to get better, but they're going to reach a limit beyond which we can never go in principle, not just in practice. And the reason for that is that the relationship between our genotypes, our individual genetic profiles, and our traits, is, especially our psychological traits, is not very tight. There's a lot of variation. So we all have a human genome, codes for making a, a, a human brain. My, my version of that genome codes for making a brain like mine, but not exactly mine. Every time there's a, that that program is run, 
a different outcome happens. The genome just encodes a program. It doesn't encode the specific outcome. All it has is the biochemical rules by which the brain self-organizes, but it's a really noisy, variable process. So not from anything outside the embryo or outside the organism, just variation in, in the, uh, the processes of development themselves. What that means is that no matter how good our genetic knowledge gets and no matter how good our genetic predictions get, our, our ability to actually predict the phenotype will always be fuzzy. It will always be just a bit crap, to be honest. Uh, but that doesn't mean people won't try. Right, thank you. So were we meeting in my home country, this event would have begun with a ritual. It would have begun with someone, perhaps an indigenous person, standing on stage and welcoming all of us onto their country. It would have been done in language, and it would have followed a formulation that goes something like, I want to acknowledge that we meet today on the traditional lands, the place where I live now, the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people, and I want to acknowledge their ancestors past and present and their leaders emerging and pay my respects to the place that we come from. The reason we do that in Australia, and it's a relatively new ritual for settlers to do, Aboriginal people have always welcomed each other into country, but as a nation we've performed that ritual since 1988, since our Western Bicentennial. We do it as a way of doing two things. One, acknowledging that all Australia proceeds from a much earlier root than British colonisation. And two, to acknowledge what it means to be in a place that has been continuously occupied by human culture for somewhere between 60 to 100,000 years. Part of what it makes me think about today, because it would be strange to stand here and say, I want to acknowledge the Irish ancestors, past and present, and their leaders emerging, although I do. Uh, the reason we do it in Australia is because it's a way of marking who we are. It's a way of talking about being human in the 21st century by referring back to events that are 60 to 100,000 years old. What that suggests to me is that the business of being human is always cultural. It's performed. It is political and contested, and it changes over time. What it also means in Australia, at least, is that you can't talk about being human in the 21st century without talking about what it means to have been human in 60,000 centuries that preceded it. And when in Australia we talk about building new technology, I at least do it acutely aware that I am building technology in a place that has the oldest technical systems ever made by human beings. Some thousand kilometres from where I ply my trade is the oldest technical system built by human beings that we know of. It's a set of fish traps. It is your stone <coughs> tools designed to change the way water moves through a series of rivers and guarantee a constant supply of fish for the Aboriginal people who live there. That system was used for nearly 40,000 years. It only stopped being used in the 1930s. So the notion of humanness there is an incredibly long one. So for me, when I think about what does it mean to talk about being human in the 21st century, it's to acknowledge all the versions of human that have come before. When we want to think about what does it mean to talk about being human in a world being remade by technology, I think everyone that's come before me has made this point. Technology didn't get invented in the last five years. AI didn't create an intervention into what it means to be human. It's a continuity of multiple interventions by humans and by technical systems and the dialogue that's created. I want to tell you just three stories because for me they are indexical stories that remind me that the notion of 
being human is an expansive one and one that's often been contested and debated. So let's pick one that's 200 years old. This is the 200th anniversary of the Frankenstein story. 200 years ago that Mary Shelley's novel became, or novella became a novel and went into publication. It has stayed continuously thus. And it tells the story of a doctor, Frankenstein, who takes the most recent technology of his day, electricity, although electricity doesn't actually turn up in the book until 1936, 1836 edition. In the first edition, it is merely chemical ideas. But it tells the story of a doctor who takes the most recent technology at his disposal and makes a creature come to life. And the arc of that story is about humans teaching that creature how to be or not to be human. And the creature spends its time peering through holes in the wall, desperately trying to work out what are the rules by which humanness is made. And ultimately, humans reject that creature because it doesn't quite learn the rules. That story has endured for 200 years in some ways for a couple of reasons. One, because the notion of the idea of when humans get to make life is a complicated one, and it's a moral play as much as a technical play but also because there's something really seductive in the idea that as humans we might get to make something, perhaps in our own image, perhaps better than ourselves, certainly different than ourselves, but that it will have the echoes of ourselves running through it and we will take our language to give it shape and give it form. Now, of course, Shelley borrowed that story. It's the story of the golem in the shtetls in Prague. It's the story of a rabbi making life using the word of God in the forehead of a creature but it's also the story of electricity, it's the story of computers, and it's the story of AI. In 1915, Scientific America carried an article about a thing that was described in the headline as the great brass brain of Norfolk. An excellent headline, which causes you to want to read the rest of the article. Think of it as 1915 clickbait. And were you to read that article, as I now have, as I chase that story across many historical contexts, you would find two men whose names we do not remember, two men named Roland Harris and E.G. Fisher, who created a machine. It was about three metres long, two metres high. It weighed 1,100 kilograms. It was a mechanical computer. It calculated the tides. It was built by the United States Coastal Service to work out how to determine where the water was moving. It stayed in service from when it was first built in 1915 to when it was decommissioned in the 1960s. When it was first built, it was called the giant brass brain. By the time they decommissioned it, it was known as the old brass brain. <laughs> What's wonderful about that is that in making sense of that piece of machinery, the only language its progenitors could find and the only language the journalists could find to describe it was to borrow the language of humans. It wasn't a brain, it was a set of cogs and levers and pulleys, but to make it make sense, they made it human. They called it a brain. That language of the notion of extending humanness to mechanical objects is, for me, an interesting move. It's a move of literature in the 19th century. In the 20th century, it's a move of technologists. And by 1956, a number of men gathered at Dartmouth College in America. You heard one of them referenced on stage, Tim Marvin Minsky, but also Claude Shannon and John McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy. And they spelt out a research agenda and coined a phrase, and the phrase they coined was artificial intelligence. And the research agenda they spelt was what to do with computing in 1956, when the power of computing seemed limitless. 
And they said that computing in this artificial intelligent world would do four things. It would make machines use language. They would form abstractions and concepts. They would solve the kind of problems now reserved for humans. A delightful ambit claim if ever I've heard one. And that the machines would improve themselves. In 1956, the move to make the technology like us was to say it was about those things. It was about language, it was about abstractions, it was about problems now reserved for humans and about an ability to learn. So why am I telling you those stories? Why do I want to tell you about Frankenstein and the giant brass brain and artificial intelligence? Well, the thing about all those stories and the thing for me about the notion of humanness is that that's not an easy definition. What does it mean to be human? Well, who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide what is human and under what circumstances? Three weeks ago in Australia, we celebrated an unexpected anniversary. It had been a year since we passed a gay marriage referendum in Australia, making it legal to marry if you were homosexual. You did it slightly earlier here, and I'm awfully proud that that's true. But that means until 2015 in this country, other people decided what it meant to be fully human. What it meant to be fully human turned out to be not a simple act, it was a political act. The thing about the notion of who gets to say who is human means that you're always saying someone isn't. And the entire history, in some ways, of any culture I can think of is that what it means to be human is usually what it means to not be like the people on the other side, on the other side of the river, on the other side of the fence, on the other side of the ocean. And the notion of saying somehow that what it means to be human in the 21st century is simple is perhaps a hope rather than a reality. And that what I know as an anthropologist is that who gets to decide to be human, what it means to be human, who is human, and under what circumstances, those are not easy questions. Those are questions that aren't questions discerned by technology, but questions that we will arrive through technology. But ultimately, the notion of who gets to be human and why that matters, and whether or not we get to say some things are or aren't human, is a question not just of technology, but of... I would have said, morals and ethics and societies. And frankly, the notion that some of us get to grant humanness to others or not is an awesome and awful responsibility. So with that, I want to end it there. Thank you. Thank you.